Welcome to Pragmatic. Pragmatic is a show about technology and contemplating the finer details and their practical application. By exploring the real-world trade-offs, we dive into how great ideas can be transformed into products and services that impact our lives. Pragmatic is entirely supported by you, our listeners. If you'd like to support us and keep the show ad-free, you can by becoming a premium supporter. Premium supporters available via Patreon and through the Apple Podcasts channel subscription. Premium supporters have access to early release, high-quality versions of episodes, as well as bonus material from all of our shows not available anywhere else. Pragmatic is also a podcasting 2.0 enhanced show, and with the right podcast player, you can also stream Satoshis and boost with a message as you listen. Just visit engineer.network slash pragmatic to learn how you can help this show to continue to be made. Thank you. I'm your host, John Chigi, and today I'm joined once again by Dave Jones. How's it going, Dave? Oh, it's going great. It's beautiful here. The weather is fantastic. I mean, like uh, usually in Alabama, it's a million degrees and a million, uh, you, you know, a million uh, humid humidity, whatever humidity units are, yep. percent humidity. Mm-hmm. And uh, now it's like, Oh, outside it's in the high sixties. Um, uh, just most mostly dry. It's oh, it's just beautiful time of year. We we in Alabama we get we get like uh three weeks of gorgeous weather and then it swing like, you know, you get this window of, of nice weather in the spring and another window in the fall and the rest of the year it's miserable. So <laughs> we're Jeez. in the window. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing is it's uh, it's also in the 70s here. It's 71 at the moment, um, so or 22 degrees Celsius if you prefer Celsius. Um, but yeah, and it's it's a beautiful day too. I love this time of year. It's um it's not it's it's a little bit cooler at night, but it's not too hot in the day. So we haven't quite hit summer yet. Uh, but yeah, spring is in mm. spring is uh, in full flight. So, but I do love this time of year where I live. It's um subtemperate kind of a climate. It's not quite tropical. Um, cause I grew up in the tropics. So about a seven hour drive North of here and right on the Tropic of Capricorn when I was, uh, when I was growing up in Rockhampton and, uh, yeah, I, I feel that humidity complaint. Um, it's, it was always like 90% or more relative humidity and it was stinking hot and it was just generally unpleasant, but here different story. So it sounds like right now today though, different sides of the world, we got some, uh, almost identical weather, which is great. Not complaining. The humidity, I, t- I keep, I, I tell, I talk to my kids about this. Hmm. Like humidity is like ninety percent of comfort. Yeah, because you you know the you can take a a room and not change the actual temp the the real temperature of that room at all, and just lower the humidity and make a drastic difference. Like seventy five degrees at eighty percent humidity and seventy five degrees at forty percent humidity are two completely different experiences. Oh, totally. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. I actually did some work out at um, a mine, a coal mine, way, way back in my youth, or 1996, 97. And uh, I was out in a township called Mara. And uh, Mara is a good three hours inland from the coastline. And uh, it was regularly in the, uh, the 100, 110 sort of a temperature range. But the humidity was effectively non-existent. So you didn't feel it. You're just, I mean, you're, you felt like, I'm walking through a blast furnace, but it's not really a bo- it's not really bothering me. <laughs> yes, yeah. It's a com- it's a it's a comfortable blast furnace. Yes, it's, it's exactly it's more like a warm blanket. You know? Yes, it's it's like a scorching warm blanket. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's funny how that works. But yes. Anyway, all right. Humidity, yes, uh, is not our friend. <laughs> but um 
Okay, so on to what we wanted to talk about um, today is um, the reason I got you back on, and thank you for coming back on. I, uh, I Yeah, anytime, bro. Yeah, I just wanted to continue the conversation uh, in two dimensions. One is a little bit about um, sort of like the Bitcoin thing that I've been grappling with and I'm trying to get my head around some of the little nuances. But the other thing is mainly about some more um, stuff on podcasting 2.0, particularly around sound bites. But I thought... We should probably start with Bitcoin, and I'm because I, you know, I, I run my own Bitcoin Lightning node on a Raspberry Pi using Raspberry Blitz, Raspberry Blitz, sorry, and um, and it's been, to be honest, pretty solid. Haven't had too many issues with it, um, and I've got a whole bunch of other little bits and pieces um, running on there, like I've, you know, I run Helipad on there and uh, a Boostergram uh, messenger that I did the extract TLV uh, Python script running over and over. And a few other bits and pieces, but it's been it's been really good, and I've uh, I've learned a lot about channel management and uh, for, on the Lightning Network, and uh, I've come a long way since we last spoke. So it's um, so it's been quite the interesting educational journey. And one of the things that I was thinking about with Bitcoin and have been thinking about for a year or more now is, um, I, I do look at all the different other crypto currencies out there and what worries me is the fact that they they seem to be be plagued by a lot of um there's a lot of like like pump and dump sort of stuff going on there's lots of um you know like is almost some of them have boards and board members and consortiums and and different interests and some are driven by corporations and the one thing that bitcoin doesn't have is well any of that (laughs) yeah that's right i sort of look at that and i think to myself well is there actually any other cryptocurrency out there that is actually truly independent like Bitcoin? Because I, I think it's the only one that there is. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I would say that Hive is probably the only other one that comes that that is similar. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, that, I think, is almost purely by accident because, I mean, now I'm not the Hive blockchain historian by any means, but... I do know enough to know that it was a it was a split of some sort from Steam, I think was the original blockchain, the name of the original blockchain uh, that Hive came from and I think a lot of the protocol was was is the same between the two. I think they've diverged now, but if if I don't if if I know this correctly, if I know this history correctly, I think there was this some sort of like uh, uh, dissatisfaction between uh, different factions within Steam, and then there was like this takeover. Anyway, a bunch of nastiness, and then what got split out or forked out of Steam became Hive. And okay. I think the result of that, like a lot of these, what you're talking about, is there's a lot of pre-mining that goes on. A lot of the, the people don't realize. Um, that a lot of cryptocurrencies, a lot of blockchains are owned by, they're owned by companies. So uh, something like Cardano or, you know, these different uh, cryptocurrencies that you hear about, XRP, they're owned, they're actually owned by a company and they're, uh, they do what's called a pre-mine. And so the company or the stakeholders or whatever get a certain share of the coins up front before the blockchain goes public. And I believe that was the case with Steam, um, if I'm not mistaken. But because of this split thing that happened, I think what you ended up with is sort of an independent uh, crypto, uh, excuse me, blockchain that 
uh, it's proof of stake, but I don't think there is the, it's not owned by any corporation. It's op- it's actually open source and decentralized, uh, and it doesn't have the pre mine factor in it. I think there were some there were some whales and some beneficiaries that happened during that whole transition, but I believe it's a more pure entity than almost any other coin that I can think of. Oh, well, there's Monero. That's that's another one. So Monero, uh, Monero is is unique in a lot of ways too. Uh, it it is proof of work, like Bitcoin, but it's um, it's shtick, so to speak, is like it's not just an AES hash that goes as fast as you can go. It's more of a uh, I forget the exact technology. It's like S crypt or something like something like that, where it's meant to be a um, sort of a GPU CPU neutral sort of thing. You can you can mine Monero just as well on a CPU as you can on a GPU. Yeah. So uh, you can actually still be profitable as a miner uh, with normal uh, hardware. Okay. And Mon- Monero is is a very interesting coin. So I think. I think the and there's very privacy focused and it uses these this relay system and it also does like a uh, a variable block size. So with most with most blockchains, the block size is fixed, and so that could be like you know one megabyte, five megabytes, whatever, and that means that the blocks can only hold a certain number of transactions because you can only fit that much data in there. So for Bitcoin, for example, you can fit. You know, between 2,500, uh, 3,500 transactions, I think on average it's around 27, 2,800 transactions per block. Um, Monero uses a different setup where it's got this idea of variable block sizes. The blocks can get bigger and smaller in reaction to things that are going on, uh, uh, pressure, like mining pressure on the network. I don't fully understand it, but um, the the problem, if there is a if there's a big weakness with Monero, uh, it is that it's very privacy focused and, uh, it's very difficult to ever find out identity. It's, it's anonymity first. That really makes people suspicious of it. Um, and you know, especially governments and that kind of thing. Definitely. Yeah. The, the weak, the weakness of hive, if there is, you know, a weakness there, um, it's that it's just not, it's not huge. I mean, there's there's a limited number of API servers, so you don't have the breadth that you do with Bitcoin. Something you know, thousands and thousands of nodes. You just don't you don't have that there. So those mm-hmm. that I would say that the, the, probably those three are the only ones I would ever trust to do anything with personally with my own funds mm-hmm. or really my own coding time, honestly. Uh, okay. I can't think of any other one that I would really ever waste my time with. Well, the reason I wanted to sort of explore that a little bit was that, um, I mean, obviously Bitcoin is in terms of cryptocurrencies have been around the longest. Um, but one of the other things that, that Bitcoin is, um, I think, I don't know if this is unique. And this is, how, again, where I'm hoping to lean on your experience a bit and uh, knowledge is um, it has essentially got artificial scarcity. And that is to say that, you know, you will only ever have, is it 21 million, I believe? Yeah, that's right. Is the figure? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Bitcoin. So there can only ever be 21 million. And once they're mined, they're mined. So I don't know how many other cryptocurrencies have got a hard limit like that um, or whether or not that is 
Bitcoin unique? I don't know of any other that have that. I've never, I've not heard of one. If they do, it's a very small chain that I've, that I've not heard of. Yeah. I mean, like de- okay. definitely like Monero is, a, is a inflationary coin. Um, I would have to ask Brian about Hive. I'm not sure, but Bitcoin is definitely a fixed limit. It is inherently a deflationary currency. Yeah. Yeah. So that that's an interesting thing. And, and this is one of the things that, I mean, I, I think it's both good and it's bad. And um, we'll focus on, on the good part is that, you know, you can't infinitely inflate the, you can, you can't infinitely inflate it technically. Um, you, you can't just print more. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm thinking about fiat money. <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah. You, you can't just make more and therefore press deflate the value of that that's already in circulation. So like that I would count as being a good thing because you know you can manipulate the price of or the value of something by doing that and that's obviously not what you want. Uh, well, I say obviously not what you want. I think right. most people that hold it don't want that. Um, anyhow, all right. So, but that then I struggle with this whole idea of like, you know, I want to access my the Bitcoin that I have on the blockchain, mm-hmm. then um, I have keywords. And those keywords effectively are my permission to access those funds and to execute a transaction. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so-called wallet, um, I think, in a manner of speaking. Um, and I think it's kind of an interesting idea that it's a wallet, but it is, but it isn't. But anyway, so the point is that, yeah, yeah but if you lose that access, then, and you don't have those words to recover it, then that Bitcoin is always going to be there. It's just that you can't actually, you don't have permission to do anything with it. It's like stuck there forever. So like it's uh, stranded Bitcoin, I suppose you could say. And that's also a deflationary thing because people are going to be losing Bitcoin. Some some people are going to be losing some amount of Bitcoin all the time. So there's always going to be even a further mm. downward pressure on on uh, you know on inflation there. Yeah. So I guess I guess what I'm what I'm struggling with a little bit is I I mean forget the the way in which you know governments print more money because they can um, for their own reasons. I mean, that also was intended. The idea of printing more money is you take some money out of circulation and then you reprint more money to replace it because, you know, money is a physical thing and physical money will deteriorate over time. Um, you know, money will get lost and go out of circulation and so on. So, mm. you know, th- th- there's a means for that. But in Bitcoin, if you're fixed at 21 million, you can't actually do that anymore. Like you can't create more. If it's stuck on the blockchain and no one can get to right. it, then it's kind of gone. It's out of circulation. So that am I, am I missing something, or is that that is a that is a genuine issue? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that that's a real thing. Yeah, absolutely. You're you're not you're not wrong, and I mean th- this is the same. This is where the analogy with gold uh, and silver, or precious metal currencies come in. I mean, there's always the or any physical currency, there's always loss that happens. Mm. Uh, gold is probably the most apt uh, above any sort of paper currency because uh, you really it takes a lot to mine it. Uh, we know, I mean, there will be a fixed amount. We don't know what the fixed amount of gold is, but there is one. Uh, once it's all mined out of the earth and there's not going to be any more. Um, and so, you know, going when, if it's, if it, if you lose it, if you drop it at the bottom of the ocean, uh, you're out of luck. You got to go find it <laughs> or, or, you, you know, or else, you know, yeah. just like if you lose your keys to your Bitcoin, you, you got to go, you got to go find your Bitcoin. Now, I mean, on a long, you know, on a long time horizon, I think a lot of this stuff fixes itself because you're going to, you know, this, this is, I'm not going to say this is early days of Bitcoin because it's not this, it, it really, you know, it really isn't. I don't think that's the appropriate language to use, 
But mm. um, like if you go back, let's just say you go back 10 years ago, um, Bitcoin was like it was purely just a, a wallet scenario where you had to remember uh, a password that was going to encrypt your wallet in some way. Now uh, that you have all these custodial wallet providers uh, there and where you don't have to you don't have to deal with any of that if you don't want to. And, you know, there's a whole spectrum from uh, cold card hardware wallets where I have to remember my 24 seed words all the way up to Coinbase where I can just, you know, get a reset my password and I'm good to go. And so there's like this, this whole spectrum of, of options for people all along whatever their comfort level is. So I don't think it's, you know, some, some of the, the worry that was in the past, like, you know, oh, I'm going to lose my bit, you know, it, it, this is too complicated for people because they're going to have to remember their, their keys or they're mm-hmm. going to lose their stuff. I'm not so worried about that anymore because I think most people, you know, most people are now are buying Bitcoin and that kind of thing through and selling it through cash app and other and Coinbase and these other things. So it's only the hardcore nerds like, you know, like us that, are really having to remember seed words and that kind of thing. I mean, I want to, that's what I want, Sure. but most people aren't going to have to go that route. So I think that's a long way of saying that the, the loss of coin, I think the loss of units of Bitcoin is, is, is going down early days. I, I would bet you, if you looked at a graph, mo- I would bet you 80, 80% plus of Bitcoin that has been lost. So called has been the quote unquote lost. I bet that was, five years ago plus, you know, back in time because mm. it's just not it's just not as much of an issue as it used to be with all the different options we have now. But it you're right. No, it definitely is a thing. It's never coming back because you can't you I mean it, it would take you, you know, <laughs> a trillion years to find a collision on, you know, uh, on a key. So it's not coming back. <laughs> yeah, well that's it. Because I was thinking, well, you know, we've got the with gold, for example, the perfect example is tailings. So we go through and we we do a bunch of chemical washes and so on and so forth to extract gold. Mm-hmm. But those processes 20, 30 years ago were not very not as good as they are today. So we can actually go through those mine tailings and extract even more gold that was that was missed the first time. Uh, but yes, so the idea is that the what's the digital equivalent of that? And it's like I was thinking, well, you know, it may take you however many you know hundreds of years of calculations to try and recover lost Bitcoin, but then. If you're trying to like calculate or go through all of the possibilities of trying to figure out what those words are, I mean, would there be like Bitcoin reclamation services or something like that? Like I lost my words, but then I'm thinking, well, but if you could do that for anyone's wallet, you could <laughs> right. do that for anyone's wallet, yeah. couldn't you? So it's like no one would do that. So you would just hope that like hopefully with quantum computing advancements and so on and so forth, we don't reach a point where it becomes so easy to, to figure that out and we have to go to five times as many words or something like that to keep it safe. But that's a separate conversation. Um, so I was thinking, well, what happens when we get to 2042 or whenever the last Bitcoin mm-hmm. is mined and, you know, the, the human population will continue to grow. They, you know, calculations vary, world wars notwithstanding, natural disasters notwithstanding. Um, you know, we will assume the population will continue to grow. And if it becomes a transactional currency um, for day-to-day use, let's say, then the question is, well, how do we balance the the value that's available to transact against the head of population that may want to use it? Mm-hmm. And I sort of think that at some point, inevitably, 
it's going to drive that down to transactions in sats and then millisats at some point because there will just be so many people wanting to use it. Well, that's assuming mass adoption continues. It may or may not. I don't know. Um, I, I hope I hope it does, to be honest. I think that it's a balancing effect against fiat currencies, but mm-hmm. that's another think, discussion mm-hmm. probably. But I mean, let's assume that it does continue to grow. And at some point, it's like if you don't increase the quantity, um, the effect is that the, the, the value you've got left that each individual can trade is going to go less and less. So the amount of... You didn't, am I making sense or am I just overthinking this? No, no, I understand what you're saying. I believe I do. You know, so my my relationship to Bitcoin, I think, is um, is, pra- is practical more than anything. I try not to. I'm. I would never. I don't think I would call myself a Bitcoin quote unquote maxi or maximalist. Uh, and it's not because I don't believe in some of those things. I, I think I do. Uh, and I'm an Austrian at heart. And as far as eco- economy goes, economists go, but, you know, I, I really try to have a more, a more sober mindset of it. And I think that, you know, one, one of the issues that we run into when we talk about things like you're describing, like uh, what you're describing is a repricing. Yeah. Uh, there, there's a, there's a sort of, if you imagine, okay, we're here in 2022, and then in 2042, there's going to be the last Bitcoin mined. Okay, we'll assume for a, for the you know for the moment this thought experiment that in 2042, assume that we are an all Bitcoin economy. Well, so that means that some point between now and then, there has to be a massive repricing that happens within all of global commerce, to where we're no longer uh, pricing in maybe uh, even local currencies or the petrodollar. We're now pricing in units of Bitcoin, in Satoshis. Uh, the hard part about that is, and this is where my sort of attempt to be a realist comes in, and is that we've never seen anything like that happen ever in the history of humanity. So we really don't know I don't think anybody knows what that process would look like. I mean, I think there's, there would be, I can see how it would happen. Um, this is one of those issues where I can see how the, the sort of end of the process would happen, but the first steps and how everything looks in between, I, I really have no clue. And it seems like it could possibly be very, very painful um, to get, to get there because so you know, how, how do you, the, the idea that there's not going to be local currencies seems awkward and odd. Uh, look, maybe it's better to say it this way. If, if you asked me how I think Bitcoin would be, is going to be utilized, and I think it absolutely will become critical to the global economy by 2042, my first reaction would be that it would not be something that is transacted uh, the way that we transact local fiat currencies today. To me, it seems more like a uh, a backing thing that central banks or governments or banks in general transact, transact in, and then we continue, and that becomes the backing for local currencies. That would probably be my my first guess. Now I may be 
like I'm, I'm admitting complete, you know, uh, fogginess on what the future looks like. But then, uh, you know, so I think that would probably, but then you have this other idea of, okay, what we've seen now where all global, where all fiat currencies around the world, every country has a fiat currency that's completely untied to anything. To, there's no gold backing. There's no, there's nothing. There's no hard currencies anymore. We've never seen that either. I mean, this has only evolved since the Bretton Woods Agreement uh, after World War II, and especially in 1971 here in the U.S. when Nixon closed the gold window. There's no more gold redemption. Yeah. So you, from 1971, you know, until now, I mean, you're only talking about fifty. There's only been 50 years of human experience where there's been uh, no backing of currencies by any hard assets. This is this is unknown to human history. We have no idea what this is going to be like. Uh, this could be, yeah. This could be, uh, this could be awful. And uh, so, so I think there will be absolutely an inevitable return to some sort of hard hard asset backed currency. When I say I say hard in quotes. Just something like you know, like a gold or a bitcoin that can't be changed, or even property or whatever. Um, but yeah. that thing, like how we get there, man, that's a mystery. I don't know. I, I realize, Dave, that these are long-term sort of questions, and I, and, and I mean, I, I also thought about this from the perspective of, well, maybe I'm thinking about Bitcoin wrong. Um, like as in so far, so far as uh, I, it's so different from a fiat currency. So if you look at a fiat currency, like a $5 note today or a $10 mm. note today and compare it to what it was in terms of value perception 50 years ago, they may as well be completely <laughs> yeah. different currencies. You know, the, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, what you can get for it has been so inflated away that it's sort of it's almost an unfair comparison. You may as well be comparing two different currencies um, from two different countries, um, and yet it's called the same thing within the same country. So it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So maybe if 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 you if if I put aside the longer term concerns of what happens with Bitcoin in terms of what its value is worth, how do we deal with stranded money, um, accounting for population growth and transactional value and downward pressure on it. I just think about well, maybe that doesn't matter quite so much for the minute. That's a that's a future, you know, civilization problem. Uh, it, but it's a fascinating discussion, I think, because I because I, I think about it, and I'm like, the only way this can really work in the longer term is is if we get to 21 million, and then it's like there's a there's an agreement. It's like okay, well, this has become really popular. We want to use it for transactions. Let's just agree at that point that we're going to double the quantity and it's we're going to migrate from one to the other. So one blockchain will migrate to the next because ultimately you're doing a fork at that point, I guess, because you're redefining the I don't, rules. I don't think that can so, work, you John. Know. I, I, I don't think that that would ever... I, I don't think that that would ever happen uh, and because Bitcoin requires... Uh, it's a consen- you know, At its core, it's what's called a consensus, pro- a consensus protocol. And so you have to have... Um, you have to have consensus... Uh, of such a high number of nodes, a high percentage of nodes on the network to agree that uh, to agree to make a change like that, I don't see that. I, I don't see that as ever being a possibility, because most of your um, most of your network is not is never going to agree to devalue uh, their their currency. But essentially, do a split. So you, you have well, you know yeah. the thing is, current currencies will reprice themselves. Uh, I mean, the same way that, 
you know, the same way that the that they do in in the fiat world that we're used to. You're you're gonna as as currencies inflate and deflate, uh, at the assets should reprice themselves accordingly. I don't. I think satoshis is is plenty enough. I don't think we'll ever have to go to mill satoshis. Uh, I don't think that's. I don't think that would be necessary. Or if you know the way that the way that uh, these things work in a digital world when it's purely digital currency. Um, that's a mystery a little bit too, because like lightning internally is millisatoshis, but, uh, it can't actually write to the blockchain unless it's a full satoshi. So your bank account could be denominated in millisatoshis, but if you get ready to do a transfer, you know, it has to be, it could be a certain amount. Mm. That's what I'm saying. Like, I think I, it feels to me like Bitcoin operates at a lower level than than a normal currency and so like i can see how transfers of i mean just like you can't get onto paypal and you know transfer you know 10 cents to your account i mean you're gonna everything is it's a dollar at least i mean there's like this minimum that you have to meet to do some sort of like transaction or you go like around here uh if you go to like a gas station and buy a a a soft drink, you know, they, they're not going to, they're like, Oh, you know, you got to have spend at least three bucks before you, we can do that. Cause it's got to cover the credit card fee. So I think there's, when it comes to transferring funds around these minimums are probably going to just adjust themselves to account for, for whatever the reality is, you know, in the economy at the moment, there's a really good book, um, that I've had for a long time. I got, I got it oh, probably 10 years ago. It's called uh, The Value of a Dollar, and it's actually a set of books. It's by this uh, professor, Scott Dirks, and it's a text. It's a university textbook, and there's a few different ones. It's very expensive. I mean, if you find it on Amazon, it's like you know $200. But I got it many years ago, like secondhand for not very much. But it's a chronicle of – so th- this guy and his team – uh, at the university, I forgot which university it is. They went through and they looked at old newspapers, uh, magazine articles, uh, periodicals, uh, all kinds of stuff like that, and they found uh, in all these archives. And they just wrote down every time they saw like an advertisement for something. So they would be like, um, you know, a a pair of uh, a pair of slacks, men's slacks in an advertisement in a newspaper in 1936 in Chicago or, um, you know, a can of, uh, kidney beans in a grocery store in Armont, New York in 1970 to 77. And so they, they wrote all this stuff down and they chron they chronicle what things cost, uh, based not on like models or, you know, mathematical models or anything like, based on you know what people what things cost in the real world as they were as they were advertised in media and it's it is just fascinating to to go through that book and look at how uh destructive inflation has been to to humanity honestly i mean it, like you you go back in time and it's like uh you know when i was a kid i was born in 1976 you, know, you go back in time and you, you flip through there and it's like, oh, you know, milk 
you know, was, was 75 cents a gallon, you know, now it's, it's yeah. five, six, seven dollars. Uh, it, it's, it's truly amazing. And the, and the inflation, inflation is we, we have these pet names for it, like the, you know, the hidden tax and these kinds of things, but it's really much more destructive than that. And I know this is not an economics podcast and we got other stuff to talk about, but I like it's, but really, I mean, that's okay. Inflation causes people to take risks. It forces them to take risks that they otherwise wouldn't take because they know, you know, we know that if we put our money in the bank, uh, it's not going it, to, it's just, it's, it's going, we're going to be harmed every month, every week, every year. It's just going to be, it's going to slowly erode. So we have to do something to make sure that the money that we're, that we're saving uh, maintains its value over time for things in the future, like retirement or, you know, whatever. So we have to do yeah. something. And so the only thing that we can do is take risky bets on things like the stock market or, you know, business deals we may not have been comfortable getting involved in uh, before or uh, buying too big of a, ha- a house that we can't, we probably can't afford. We We take all of these risks because we're desperate for, Real assets that will maintain their value and 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 index to inflation, and uh, and holding equities and other uh, financial instruments that promise us a return. And for so, so for somebody like uh, you know like a the average uh, you know pensioner, they they don't have any business. They they shouldn't have to be doing that. They don't know it. They don't know much about the stock market. No. They don't. They they're not an expert in economics. They really have no business. If you just step back for a moment and look at it, sort of on a bigger scale, they really have no business uh, putting their money into things like equities and stocks that they do not understand. But uh, they're forced to, and they're forced to, and they get mm-hmm. and because there's really no other way. Because otherwise, inflation will will literally eat them alive. We see it really. We see it a lot now. I mean, with this eight, nine, 10% plus inflation that we've had. But really that's been true even when, even when inflation is at the magical 2% number that every central bank wants to, you know, thinks is appropriate. Uh, but anyway, I, I, inflation is so, is so much more destructive than we, than we think it is. And I saw this, I saw this um, graphic today and it was like this, uh, this chart. It was like this, this bar uh, and like a, like a spectrum laid out in front of you. And then it had uh, zero. It was demarcated as zero in the middle of this bar. And then, you know, all the way to like, you know, was something like negative 100 on the left and all the way to like positive 100 on the right. And it was a, it was a white bar. And in the middle from zero to two was this red line. And it said, you know, every everything on the left is bad. Everything on the right is bad. But everything between zero and two, that's where you want to live. You know, it was like this is the this is central bank thinking is what this is, you know. Anything other than you know somewhere between zero and two percent inflation, a positive two percent, anything other than that is bad, you know. And that's just, I mean, what the whole thing is kind of is kind of ridiculous. I think, um, and I, I, we might just um, have to wrap this up on this particular topic in a second because, as you say, like we're, neither of us are economists. Um, although you've studied this a lot more than I have, I think. Um, the reality I struggle with is that you know when you break it all down, nothing's really worth anything. It's it's just a value that we ascribe to it. And I, yeah. 
and I I find it um, an exercise in frustration trying to understand economic thinking. And I mean understand economic thinking. That is to say, understanding economics is not difficult. Uh, understanding the, the, the accepted wisdom that this is what economics should be and how it should work, that's the bit that I struggle with because um, economics should not be as complicated as it has been made. Mm. And it becomes a thing that is becomes impossible for most people to comprehend. I've spent most of my life just ignoring it because it was, to me, <laughs> so ridiculous. Like the whole thing was just so ridiculous to me. Um, I find that Bitcoin for me has been a breath of fresh air. It's a fresh take on things. It's not perfect, but you know what? It seems to be quite a lot bit be- a lot better um, than many of the other alternatives. And uh, I know I'm, I'm sort of, I'm not touching on the more controversial points, but, you know, like things like energy consumption and so on. And there's there's ways and means for that to be handled. I don't mean to dismiss though people with those concerns and that's fine. Um, the, the, the truth is though that um, it does have a lot going for it. And I think that uh, I'm glad that it exists. I don't know if that makes me a maxim, <laughs> maximalist or not. And I, and I, and I, and I don't yeah. like the terminology. It sort of like puts people into a bucket. It's like, oh, you're a, you're a Bitcoin maximalist and I'm like, I'm a what? Is that an insult or a compliment? I don't even know what that's supposed to mean. I feel like um, I'm glad it exists. And I think that good things will come from it ultimately. But like I said, I just can't help the back of my brain just thinking about the longer term, like where is this going? And um, and yeah, I mean, inflation is is ridiculous. Um, and I have nothing else to add to that, unfortunately, other than I hate it. <laughs> You know, 2008, um, Adam had made this point once before, is he's like, if you look at all of the Bitcoin people, this, I'm, I'm excluding crypto, I'm just thinking of, Bit, let's just, just, just Bitcoin. Sure. You think, if you look at all the Bitcoin people, mm-hmm. uh, many of them got, uh, many of them are young. If you look at their ages, they're, they sort of had their coming of age, so to speak, or... Uh, Around or young adulthood around the time of the 2008 financial crisis and beyond. And they really, they don't trust the system in any way. And we probably all, you know, really shouldn't because, you know, we saw saw this past week, Ben Bernanke won the Nobel prize in economics. I mean, the guy that that, that one year before the 2008 financial collapse said, uh, you know, said, uh, oh, I don't, the, the housing market's fine. We don't see anything wrong with it. And that, you know, less than a year later, that the housing market in the United States almost brought down the entire global economy. I mean, this, and he, you know, he, he's the guy that wins the Nobel prize in economics. I think that's probably what your, what your frustration with in economics is, is that, and it's like, if you see Bitcoin, mm-hmm. okay, well, yeah, it's not, it's not perfect. And I don't want to be called a maxi either because I think it's got a lot of tech bro, grossness attached to it after all this time but if you think about it as an engineer as you are it's sort of the engineer's money it's like i can see how this works I and mean, it's math this is math i don't i don't have to mm-hmm. i don't have to get into the squishiness of uh you know terms like uh, is the uh, is the bond market going to quote break which is what we've seen uh, like i've seen these headlines mm-hmm. this past week you know is the bond market about to break well what what the hell does break mean? I mean, this is not this is not a real word. I mean, like, what are, what are we talking about? How how does like 
Mm. Something either works or it doesn't. I mean, like, there's no broke here. I mean, so I don't know. I think it makes sense that you that you would uh, get that you would get quote unquote Bitcoin because I mean that's 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 the math. That's the engineer money. Hundred mm, yeah. <laughs> percent programmable money. Oh yeah. All right. So maybe we should um, put a pin in that um, economics discussion. I realize that um, whilst. Uh, yeah, I, I feel like we've kind of gone as far as we can go with that conversation without us studying economics at university <laughs> for years and still being confused at the end of it. Um, so, yeah, we should probably just keep moving because the next thing I want to talk about um, relates to uh, the podcasting uh, mm-hmm. 2.0 namespace. And I have implemented a lot of these tags. And one of the advantages of, of owning all the layers in the stack is that I can do this relatively mm-hmm. easily on a whim if I want to. Um, so, I mean, currently I'm using like locked funding, value, GUID, social, trailer, license, medium, chapters, soundbite, images, location, almost all of them. Person, which, you know, <laughs> yeah. which is almost all of them. Yeah. Because like, oh, ooh, new tag. Oh, I can use that. Um, currently not using live, but there's, that's mainly because I don't do live shows. So, um, anyway, um, have been there, have been there, done that. Anyway, as we talked about when I was uh, when I was a guest on episode one hundred, yeah, not a great experience for you. No, it did not work out well for me. Um, so, in any case, um, doesn't mean I won't do it on a different show in the future again. Maybe, but for the moment, the answer is yeah, no. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, almost every other tag. So one of the ones that one of the things I was grappling with is I was listening to I think it was Mitch Downey and um, maybe it was John Spell. Like I can't actually no, it wasn't. It was um, Mary's mm-hmm. Mary Oscar Oscar Mary. I forget. But um, they were there were guests on um, podcasting 2.0 several months ago, and they were talking about what could we do with sound bites. You know, could we? And, and I, I hate to say gamify because it makes it sound dirty, but in a sense, you know, provide some kind of a um, remuner- remuneration, remuneration kind of uh, benefit to people contributing. Um, and what got me thinking about it initially was. Well, what, right now, let's say someone wants to um, cloud chapters or shared chapters. Um, so you would get someone like, I believe, Dreb Scott is um, helping out on podcasting 2.0, doing chapter um, chapter mm-hmm. artwork and chapter definitions and so on. And um, he is then coded in to the main RSS feed split. So he is always in there and it's sort of like, well, you know, like that's how he is. He's compensated with a percentage of the split, which is, which is you know, fine. But it got me thinking about like sound bites and could we do something with sound bites that is sort of similar but a little bit more targeted? And so I thought to myself, well, I guess my my fundamental issue with sound bites is that up until now, and I say up until now in air quotes because I mean this is still the case, I guess. Um, it's still the case whereby sound bites are in fact defined by the um, the end end listeners. So that you go into an app and create a sound a sound bite or whatever else and. Uh, and share it so like overcast was doing this for years you could share them uh, and i did this a few times you know like it'll actually take the audio it'll turn it into a like an instagram shareable thing if instagram's your thing um you know it's not for me really i didn't i did it a couple times and stopped doing it but it's like it's all about encapsulating the audio into a discrete file and then posting a link to that on social media of somewhere and that's like this is how i'm sharing a soundbite of the show so when we started doing work. When I say we is in the podcasting <laughs> 2.0 industrial complex. We started doing, you know, hey, I'm just saying, representing, never mind. Okay. I'm sorry. I find the whole industrial complex thing to be hilarious. <laughs> I know it's supposed to be a running gag. It is funny. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's all for the bit. Yeah. The, you know. the podcast industrial complex is just like every industrial complex. Uh, somebody is getting rich and making all the money. It's just not you. 
Yeah, pretty much, yes. So the podcasting 2.0 industrial complex is the complex that isn't. Yes. So, you know, we're, we're providing value for everybody. Anyway, all right. So staying on topic, um, the point with sound bites is that you can now create them and put them in your feed uh, on an on episode item level and, you know, the podcaster defines them. And so then we've now got this uh, applications, things like Podverse, for example, that will scrape the feed, look at the episode um, XML from your RSS feed and say, oh, I've got one, two, three sound bites. Here are their start and end times and so on. And it provides the interface for uh, someone to listen to them. So far, so good. And I think that that's a better way of doing it because you're using the source audio and the podcaster has control over it. But the problem with that is that you've basically got, well, <clears throat> now as a podcaster, I have to create those in the same fashion that in the past, I also had to create the chapters. So having cloud chapters has been in some respects beneficial, but we don't really have cloud sound bites. We don't have shared sound bites that we can actually mm. accept um, submissions for. And this is the problem that was discussed a few episodes, well, several episodes back uh, on podcasting 2.0. And it got me thinking, well, how would you, how could we do that? And so what I, what I, I put in a proposal on the namespace uh, whereby we attach, uh, so the idea is that an application, a client application could be a website and I, and I build a website to demonstrate how it could be done. Um, not necessarily how it should be done, but how it could be done. Because I'm, I'm a bit of a hacker and a slasher when it comes to web development, so I, I know enough to be dangerous. And you know, then let's just leave it there. Um, write too much stuff in Node and JavaScript, and never mind. The point is that um, if you were to create um, a tool that can then save that as something in a JSON format with a start, a time, a duration, title and enter your your name and a lightning node mm-hmm. for for a value reference and submit that to a podcaster, then that podcaster could opt to incorporate that into their feed. So the idea would be that if then that podcaster had the tool to do that, which I also created um, an example of, if they then ingest that JSON file, they can have a list of those uh, sound bites that have been submitted by listeners, select the ones that they want to put in their feed, and then essentially push that to their feed as another JSON file. So everything is handled in JSON. It's all very basic, very simple, easy, human readable. And you just need a couple of tools to do it. And you could share it via an API if you wanted to be fancy, or you could just do it the cheating, simple way and send it as an email, send it as an attachment in an email, which is the way I've currently done it. The only problems I've got um, with some of that is, um, well, okay, I'll get to that in a minute. But conceptually, what this then does is it gives you the ability. um, So let's say you're now Podverse. So Podverse um, now reads through those sound bites that are in the the JSON file attached to the feed. And you've got three of these sound bites and they've got value tags now associated with them. So you could then for each play... um, if you've obviously got, you know, um, sats loaded in your wallet, you could then remunerate the person that created the soundbite mm. basically by playing that soundbite. And hence, there becomes a an incentive for people to contribute soundbites. And the more popular the soundbite, the more it gets played, the more they get remuneration. So it's not a fixed split. It's, a, it's essentially a pay-per-play kind mm-hmm. of a concept, no differently to streaming sats. And the only difference with soundbites is that in order to stop the system from being gamed, doing a rate per minute would probably not make sense because you don't want your sound bites to be more than two minutes long. Uh, so, because I mean, otherwise the incentive would be, oh well, you, right. you know, you're going to stream 
this to this other person who submitted the soundbite. Yeah, yeah. The soundbite goes for five hours. It's like, well, no, not no, not really, not really what we want. So the only thing I struggle with is is more about the well. There's a few things I struggle with. I struggle with well, what if you have three people um, that were each thirty three percent split um, creating that episode, and you do a soundbite. That soundbite would then have to be split, uh, a fee, uh, an amount going to those three people that create the episode, and mm. a split going to the person that created the soundbite. So you'd have to work through the math behind that, and then what? What is fair? If it has to be mm. fixed, then that needs to be set by the podcaster. And I thought, well, you know, maybe to make it simple as a default, you'd say, well, what's the suggested streaming sats rate? Take that number and multiply it by like a factor of five or ten or something, and say, well, each one by default is this. And then the podcaster could override it because maybe they just don't want to set that, maybe set it, set suggested streaming or whatever rate. I don't know. Like I said, anyway, so there you go. Thoughts, comments? I got a lot of thoughts on that, a lot of thoughts on this. Well, because this sort of fits into something that I was actually talking to Dan Benjamin about today. We were um, talking, we were discussing just like some, some sharing stuff with uh, within podcasting and it, what I told him was this sort of like th- there needs to be a better way to do sharing within podcasting just in general so if, if, so if, if we set aside soundbites for the moment and just say okay how do you share things within the podcast ecosystem uh, everything seems very tied right now to the application layer and the share button, the share sheet. And, and like you said, like emails and these kinds of things, or it's somehow embedded into the application itself. The application has to go scrape up a bunch of content or get people to produce. Um, and so the problem is that there's no like standardized way for these things to get pushed around from entity to entity within within podcasting there there's only the distribution mechanism of RSS and that's where soundbites started was the podcaster can say okay here's two soundbites that I consider to be and each of them are a minute and a half long or whatever and I consider these to be like the two really great uh, segments of this episode that are a, almost like a trailer where it's like, if you just want to, this are, these are going to be attention getters. These are, these are the good, the good, the good hits. And then like you said, okay, well, what if you want to go outside of, of that and put it in the creator's hand and put it in the listener's hands. And now the listener is going to spend their time to create a sound bite. Um, how do they get that back into the ecosystem? Uh, there's there's really not a way to do that it falls back it falls that back to you as the the owner of the prag, pragmatic stack to somehow build this into your system where the uh, build a web app which you did the soundbiter app that will help people do this and so then you now you have to distribute that back out so and all that's fine, except I guess there's a bigger thing there. And I think John Spurlock's podcast events uh, proposal, tag, his tag proposal, is 
I think is the first steps to trying to figure this part out because uh, there's there's data what what his event what his events tag does is it defines a URL on the hosting platform that says or whatever whatever platform is producing the RSS so let's just call it the publishing platform so it defines a URL endpoint on the publishing platform of the podcast puts that URL into the feed as a tag and then describes the the, the events that is going to accept and so this uh, in a standardized way you could give back events to the publishing platform uh, to tell it okay these things have happened or these types of data are available or whatever. So you can think of a million different scenarios. You can think of um, a, uh, one where you can report back to the publisher, this uh, somebody started listening to this feed, to this enclo- enclosure, or somebody started, um, uh, or some somebody uh, subscribed to this feed, or uh, somebody... Uh, or one one we used on the last episode, uh, the artwork of this episode is not working. Like it's 404-ing, mm-hmm. uh, error, like error reporting. Um, well, in this instance, you could report back and say, uh, okay, somebody just created a soundbite. Well, now the publisher knows the soundbite details, and they can turn around and either put it into like what you said, where which is the, you know, like a, either the JSON file or the sound bites uh, grouped tag in the feed. Now they can populate that because they now know that that, that event happened and we don't, we don't have to like uh, figure out some way to shuffle files around on the back end. You know, it's just like this single, um, it technically is an API, mm. but it's sort of an open standardized API way of doing things. Um, yeah. So I, I think like just from a transport sense, I think that's the way I think something like that is the way forward because then um like what you what you're describing um is the final is like the format and then we need we need a transport mechanism for the format uh, so I, I think I think this I think this these things fit in together is what I'm trying to say yeah I absolutely agree and uh, when when John Spurlock put that um uh, concept out there for uh, the proposal forward, sorry, for events. That was one of the first things that came to my mind is that, yeah, we could use this for, um, you know, like uh, chapter proposals. We could use yeah. it for soundbite proposals. We could use it for all sorts of different things, um, which, you know, is sorely lacking because the way in which yeah. we do it now is um, here's an email, you know, attaching my JSON file to it. I mean, I know it's archaic. It works. But so for me, I was my, – my, so, yeah, the, the two proposals absolutely, you know, can work together there's no question in my mind and and in fact that is a far better method than sending it by email but i um you know i refer to the title of this show um i I try to be pragmatic about it and realize that look um i don't want to let perfect be the uh you know be the enemy of good Mm -hmm. here let's just get something out there that works and let's start the conversation so i mean irrespective of the the mechanism and i think that having a mechanism that doesn't require email is definitely the way to go um, but not, I'm not a, um, mm. how should I say a web API kind of guy. Um, I mean, I've written APIs before in different languages, but as more from a library perspective, 
um, it's not my not my area of expertise. I'm capable of doing it in a pinch, but not going to profess expertise. But I guess my point is that I wanted to make sure that people like start thinking about this idea that like sound bites need to be vetted by the podcast creator mm-hmm. if you're going to provide compensation for doing it. You know, so I guess that to me is the fundamental problem I've got with. Oh, sharing sound bites, for example, it's like it's a discovery thing, and it's uh, yeah, anyone can create sound bites, and it's like yeah, but if anyone can create sound bites, why don't they? And the answer is that most people, the the true super fans of your of your show, will happily create a sound bite, no remuneration, no interest in any kind of feedback loop. That's that's fine, that's great, and I love those fans of of, of my shows. You know, they're they're awesome, and you know, I love them, and that's awesome. But the truth is, the vast majority of listeners to shows aren't like that. But if you then say, well, you know what? If you were to submit these sound bites, there is a, a possibility that every time the sound bite is played, that you will get, you know, a few sats for your trouble. I think that changes some of that equation. It's not going to make everyone want to submit sound bites, but it's going to encourage more people to do it mm-hmm. than you have currently. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's more my point. Right. Like, irrespective of the transport mechanism. Um, so. You know what I've tried to do in the submission is I've tried to say, well, look, I've tried to think this through as best I can. Um, you know, as from the creator perspective as well as the developer perspective. If you're someone like Fireside, you know, so you're saying you're talking to Dan Benjamin, right? So on the Fireside platform, or if it's if you're Libsyn on the Libsyn platform, you know, if that were to be sent via that that API that you're talking about, um, the uh, the events uh, proposal, you know, in whatever format you choose. Or as an email and a JSON file that you just simply import into your web interface that they that Libsyn or Fireside gives you, you know how they handle that in the back end. I really don't care. It's just a matter of you know they need to have the ability. Sorry, the podcast creator, uh, publishing person, nominated person needs to be able to select the ones mm-hmm. they want, tweak if necessary, and then publish to their feed. How that's done in their web interface is entirely up to them. All I've done is what I've done for my system. So my system works for me. Everything I'm doing is done, is, is a static site generator using GoHugo. So I manage all my stuff using JSON files because it's convenient for me. And uh, I, I just run up a node uh, a node server running Soundbit and then it goes through and imports and gives you that list. It scans through the RSS feed and looks for whether or not the episode is e- even wants sound bites. So one of the other parts of my proposal is, well, maybe a, a podcaster says, well, I don't want you to submit sound bites for episode right. 47 because I've got 20 good ones already. So there's there's a, an option for a boolean in mm-hmm. there that says yes it, sound bites are open or they're not. So you can submit a sound bite on any episode that's open. For example, um another thing that I was thinking about as well is that um and I'm not saying that everyone should be concerned about download counts because I realize there's pros and cons and people get obsessed with numbers and I believe me I've been through that roller coaster. Uh <laughs> Um, you know, and advertisers, it seems to be more what they mm. care about, that plus conversions, which is another thing. But anyway, so if you are not careful about what you link to, then every time someone plays a soundbite against your episode you're tracking downloads on, for example, it will potentially qualify as a listen. So every soundbite listen is an episode listen, which is, from an advertiser's perspective, disingenuous. So... You know, I feel like you know being able to specify and say unless you pay for them and put them in a game. Well, that's <laughs> oh, that was terrible when I heard about that. Oh my goodness! But I mean, yeah. somehow that's okay. But, it's yeah. oh, that is not okay. Oh my god! Anyhow, <laughs> but yeah, no, that that's um that was next level um next level ass hattery. But never mind. I, I suppose 
I guess my point is that you can also then specify in the Soundbytes um, proposal, you can say, well, use this particular file. It's not, you know, you don't have to. It'll default to using the one that's listed in the item in the feed. But alternatively, you can use this particular one here. This file is not tracked for download, so you're not going to mess with your download counts. So things like that, I've tried to think about as many things as I could. But ultimately, you know, it comes back to, you know, would this actually encourage people to do this? So on episode 47 of Causality, I put that in the intro read and said, hey, this is now available to you. You can submit it and so on and so forth. And uh, I have had no submissions. So I'm not entirely sure if it's one of those things that needs to be, I don't know, hammered home a bit more. Like I need to do it for more and more episodes and reinforce and reinforce. And then hopefully someone might find interest in it. Or maybe I'm barking up the wrong tree. Maybe this is simply something that shows of different you know, mm-hmm. scales and or types will have different levels of participation. I don't know. But if you don't know, unless you try. Well, so, anyway. I think, you know, I think there's a couple of things that come to mind when I, when I say the, the, the proposal, the proposal as it's written is, uh, makes a lot of sense. Um, and I mean, just from a, just from a, a structural stamp, you know, standpoint, it makes, it makes sense. The, the, the awkward, the only awkward part was the split designation. That one, I don't know. It feels that one's hard. That one's just that one's just difficult. Uh, I think it's a hard. I think it's yeah. a hard way to address something that's inherently like multifaceted in a single value like that. Um, but I think the the issue really hmm. sound bites are hard. They're hard to make. Uh, no matter how good the tool is, they're always fiddly, and you got to like, you got to really, you know, get real granular mm-hmm. and, and narrow in on the on where the thing's going to start. If if you're if you're obsessive, you know, if you're OCD, which people, a lot of people who are, who make clips, oh yeah, they are they're they're pretty OCD. If you're OCD, you, I mean, that start position and that end position, those things are like critical and so you you end up fiddling with it and fiddling with it and especially if you're in a mobile app oh it's so hard it's just really difficult to get those positions just right and so you what you end up with you end up spending you know sometimes you know five ten minutes trying to make a trying to get just the right clip so that you can send it to somebody uh you know or post it somewhere like twitter or whatever and that's a so it's kind of a bigger ask than people realize. Cause I think a lot of the, a lot of the apps that, that focus on clips like Podverse and fountain or two where they have sort of the, the clip making mechanism is front and center that, um, they, I'd, they don't get a large percentage of their audience to do that. It, it takes some commitment to, to make those clips. So the, yeah. the, the pay, the sort of the reward for that makes sense and rewarding people for that. But I think you hit on something that that's part of it because I'm not sure that the money really matters. Um, and, and I say that as somebody who I, I used to years and years ago, I used to make, uh, clips of, of no, of Adam's show, no agenda. And so it was, uh, I used to do, um, these short little sound bites and post them on YouTube and, you know, I did, I don't know, a couple dozen of them. And they, t- I mean, it would take me an hour to, to, 
to get it together, to get each one of them put together. And I did it just because yeah. I enjoyed it and, and it was fun. Then, so there's people that do that. And I think the, the rewarding with Satoshi's is more about the, like when you see it come in, when you see that, the, those Satoshis come in as people are listening to the clip or however that reward happens. It feels almost more to me like that's a replacement for like a like button or a heart in a social media app. Yes, you're getting to what is technically a, a unit of Bitcoin when that happens, but it's more like um, you, it's the feeling that you get of, okay, people are listening. People are using this thing that I created and that feels really good because when you just put it out into the void, you know, on Instagram or YouTube or one of these big social media networks, you know, you don't, they don't generate a lot of engagement. They don't really, they don't give you very much back. You don't get a lot of satisfaction. And so I think the, the, the money really almost is a secondary thing as money. It's more like, it's more like sats as a, or Satoshi's as a sort of substitute for, the the like the likes and the hearts and the interaction it's what it it's like you know when you see when you look at helipad and see all these you know see sats coming in it's like it's just mm. it feels good mm-hmm. if it, it feels good in a way that in the way that looking at a download stats chart doesn't i wonder i wonder if that i wonder if that's it because that the yeah i think you're i think you're right i think the rewarding people i guess this is what this is what i'm trying to say the rewarding people makes sense. I think it would encourage people to do, to put in the effort to make the clips. Um, but I, I think the interesting part of that is the reward is probably not the money. Money is probably like just the experience of mm. participation. Well, I mean, that's true. Maybe I'm wrong. No, 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 I don't. I don't. I think that that's a valid point. And I think that, like I say, there's, that's the, mm. I feel like you're talking about the subset of fans that are like the super fans that, they just love the show. They love what you do and they, they want to create clips and share it just because they love your work. And I mean, and like I said, I, I love those listeners. That, that That's awesome. Super fans are, are awesome. Um, unless they cross the line and become stalkers, in which case it's sort of, you know. Hmm. <laughs> not awesome. Decidedly not awesome. Yes. It, it's like there's a, there's a limit. But, um, you know, so they're going to do what they're going to do and that's awesome. But I guess what I was thinking is I don't know if incentivization will improve uptake maybe it won't or if it does you need to be at a certain scale for that i'm not at or it needs to be a different kind of content which i'm not producing i don't know um Mm -hmm. but i mean i'm trying to think also beyond the scope of just my own you know wheelhouse here you know i i do what i'm trying to do is 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 sort of like kickstart this this conversation about two things first of all um, I think that having soundbite as discrete entries in the main feed at an item level is probably not the right approach at this point. I think we should be considering putting it in a JSON file just like we have for chapters for all the same reasons as chapters, um, mm-hmm. which, you know, having speak, spoken to Mitch Downey about this, I mean, it's not it's not hard to do. It's just a matter of let's agree that, you know, it's either or or maybe we transition or I don't know. Um, the second piece is um, we just need to accept the fact that there's a difference between um, podcaster approved or podcaster um, submitted uh, shared, uh, sorry, uh, sound bites versus um, versus clips that anyone makes. Because one of them you can potentially provide a feedback mechanism for from the podcaster, the other one you can't, not really. So I guess what I was what I'm trying to point out is well. 
whatever the transport mechanism is that we use, whether it is the um, you know soundbite event, uh, sorry, soundbite, you know what I mean, podcast events thing, uh, or whether it's just a silly JSON file attached to an email, whatever, and then the tooling notwithstanding, it gives a mechanism, a standardized format mechanism and structure so that anyone can submit a soundbite to the podcaster and they can just include it in their feed with a couple of clicks. I feel like that's where we need to get to and that will improve um, the number of people contributing and that just makes it better for everybody. Um, whether or not value is something that's a part of that or not, I saw that as an opportunity potentially to, and again, I use the word gamify. I mean, incentivize whatever, um, whatever you want to call it. But, you know, I feel like that's an opportunity. And I feel I feel like, you know, if we can just agree a basic set of rules, um, then potentially that could be... Um, I don't know something that that we could we could consider. I don't know. I'm yeah. I, I think what you're talking about. This is one of those concepts that requires uh, layers, and you have to build in layers. And I th- I think that's the only way that things like this get, this this gets done because it is multi it's multifaceted. Sure. So you ha- you have you do have the transport issue. You've got the approval issue. You've got the uh, the format issue of this of the spec and the protocol and the way that's got to look. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of parts there, and so. When it comes to one of when it comes to things like this, my my preference is just and and this is like the the oversimplification is get a base level spec and you've done a lot of the, this work here. I would almost remove the uh, the value block stuff to begin with and. So, so that you have this thing, it's like, okay, what, what can we, what are we trying to accomplish here? It's like, we're trying to accomplish the sharing of sound of the sharing of crowd created sound bites. Mm -hmm. Okay. What is the minimum thing that we need to have in order to get that done? And then that thing is the thing. So, and you mentioned Mitch. So Mitch is, is, uh, committed a hundred percent to sound bites. That's what he's always been about mm-hmm. and, cl- and clips. So to me, something like you say, okay, we start with this layer. It's like, I, we've got, you've, you've got a proposed protocol for sharing sound bites in a JSON file. Uh, that thing can go into production with somebody like Mitch and say, okay, let's prove this thing works. And then, uh, and then, once we see that that works, now it's like okay. Well, step two, what makes sense to add va- to add the value stuff in here? Uh, d- should it be uh, should it be attributes in the tag? Should it be you know uh, external you know some sort of something external uh, to that in the, you know in in some other way? Should it be references back into a split? Like you can then then that step two because that's that's complex. To me, my I get I get muddied and confused when we try to uh, like take a thing that's this that's complicated like this and solve it all at once. Mm. I'm almost apt to want to have the sound bites tag just just live initially without the value stuff. How does how what does that make you feel like? Oh, I mean, I'm happy to take an incremental approach. That's fine. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, there's no there's no reason why. 
um, we have to put value in there straight away. But I guess my um, that the only counter to that is that is are, are the concerns around value is that something that we can resolve quite straight in a in a straightforward manner? I mean, mm. I. I can't help the way my brain thinks in wanting to try and solve, you know, and thinking forward about, you know, all the permutations. It's just the way my brain works. But um, I suppose, you know, with with, with the value block, for example, um, it, it comes back to, um, to me, it's a simple thing of, well, you've already, the, the app that's doing the value streaming, it already has the details from the main feed. Um, mm-hmm. It's just a matter of deciding, well, you know what, um, let's just agree a 50-50 split, 50% of that goes to um, the the creators of the episode. Fifty percent goes to the person that submitted the actual uh, soundbite, and mm-hmm. um, and then just let the math work itself out and say you can't have less than I don't know ten sats or whatever, however many, uh, and code that in on a client level, and then essentially let the rest shake out in the math because it because that math already exists for the split at an item level for streaming sats on an episode. So all this is really doing is it's simply passing that um, as a single fixed amount using the same math. Um, right. But I mean, the whole idea of having a 10x multiplier, for example, um, as a guide, maybe we just ditch that as an as a concept. It was just a question. Um, we could simply say, you know, the idea here is you have, if I understand, if I'm following you right, you share, you you pass the JSON file with all the soundbite details in it. Yes, you pass you pass that to the feed publisher, and then the feed publisher modifies the XML in the feed mm-hmm. in the sound in the sound bytes tag to publish that back out as part of the feed. Correct. 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 Okay. Yeah. So that the the JSON file is easy to represent the value stuff mm-hmm. because we already have the JSON for that. That's what we pass around on the back end uh, of the index, and that that's just you know that's really straightforward. Yep. The once you translate that into uh, into XML, it gets it gets funky because then because the XML for the value tag has sub you know has children that for the value recipients and so you almost need at that point the soundbite tag to have children to have reci- you know value recipient children uh, to make it make the most sense otherwise you're um because I'm t- I'm thinking of Here's what I'm trying to avoid uh, in a lot of, and this this is going to come up because you can attach value for value to any part. You, you can attach it to lots of parts. You can attach it directly to chapters. You can attach it to sound bites. Um, you can attach it to events even. You know, you could, you could attach value tags to a bunch of stuff. Um, what I'm trying to avoid is that is that you would end up with two different ways to extract two different layouts for the value information, depending on where you are. Um, like that the value block looks one way, but then when you go to parse out who gets a payment in the, in the soundbite is it, it may look a different way. And then when you get to chapters, it's going to look a third way. So the consistency where it's like, okay, value is always going, and I'm thinking of parsers here. When, when we go to ingest value is always going to look like this. It's never going to change. And then, and that's, um, that I think is not hard to do in the soundbite tag because, uh, you could gracefully fall back and say, well, if the soundbite tag has text in its node value, 
well, then it's a traditional, like, uh, what you might call a V1 soundbite. But if it has value recipient children in the, or, you know, if it's got a, a value block in it, well, then that's a V2, or so to speak. Yeah. Um, okay. I mean, that, that, that will at least let you take this, you guys, I've got this single unit of data, which is the value block. And I'm going to drop this thing in everywhere. Anywhere there's a potential for somebody to receive my, uh, to receive sats, it's always going to be this thing is the thing I'm looking for and expecting to parse. Mm. To me, that has great value because it. I mean, every other otherwise things just get really complicated from an yeah. from an ingestion standpoint. Yeah, I think I understand what you're saying. I, I guess because um, there was there was talk. I was talking to the different developers over the last few months, and there there is an interest in. Um, standardizing like having a standard value block representation that you just put in where you need it mm-hmm. um and i didn't really want to wade in on that necessarily um for me the only thing that's um the only the only point of concern for me with the value and soundbite is simply how the client interprets it uh like you can put it in the block you can have it in the feed you can have the json file which is linked to the feed and all of that is all easy enough to do it's how the what what are the rules for the client what does the client do with it when someone plays the soundbite mm-hmm. uh to make sure that you know the credit goes where it goes to and and i guess what i was thinking is you know and i'm this is now completely not thinking about the this is thinking about the podcast creator or creators uh and the podcast uh, soundbite creator and thinking about it from that perspective not the technical how do you ingest it? How do you parse it, and so on, which is its own separate you know problem. But mm-hmm. you know, if if someone is taking two minutes of a show that you and I record, then you and I would have a split between us when we record. Um, that if someone would listen to the whole episode, they would you know that that split would go to each of us. And then if someone has a soundbite of a two minutes of that, then it would make sense be that 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 some of that money for that period of time get split between the creators, which would be you and me. And then, of course, um, a fraction of that goes back to the soundbite creator. So I kind of feel like, because I thought about, well, you know, it'd be simpler if you just sent it all back to whoever created the soundbite. But the person creating the soundbite didn't create the content. And and that was that's yeah. where I kind of mentally yeah. got stuck. And I'm like, but the problem with that is that if that's the thought process you take, it leads you down that road of, well, then I've got a split of a split. And, you know, now the what links to what. Because the, the only the only wrinkle, to be honest, from the ingestion point of view that I've struggled with is it's easy if you've got an item level value split for streaming sats to go with this because, you know, the JSON file for the sound bytes is linked to a single item. Therefore, they line up perfectly. That's easy. Where it gets more annoying is, well, what if you've got um, a value split at the top of your feed at a feed level, channel level, not at an individual episode level, mm-hmm. at which point then you have to... So then sound bites would then get split against um, the top level split. And if you've got different guests and you haven't broken it down, then how does that work? You know what I mean? Like that's the only thing that I kind of got stuck with because then it's like, well, then you're sending value to people that you aren't taking sound bites of. And I'm also, <laughs> right. you, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah, like yeah. That's, that's where I actually mentally got stuck. And Yeah. Well, you know, we, we've almost run into that same issue with, uh, with, our, with our show, mm. uh, with Podcast 2.0 show is that we have – we, we've ended up what Adams ended up doing is he puts the same, he just puts a, a full value block in every episode. And yeah. We, and so it's like, okay, here's the thing. We recreate the whole block. We don't have the block at the channel and then extra people in the episode. It's like, it's just, okay. 
every every if the episode has a block, it's a complete override of what's in the channel. Uh, you do you ignore you know you ignore the channel totally, and I think you're I think you're sort of hitting on on that idea that it's like well, you know if you start if you have to start layering these things, hmm. that's way too complicated. And I, obviously, I want to avoid complexity, but at the same time, you got to discuss it and, and have an agreement and say, well, you know what, yeah. this use case, you know, we we don't do a split because you can't you can't really split that if you've only got a channel level definition, but. Mm. Well, you need you know you need the other part of the value tag as well because mm. it, there's not you know in being uh, being not a maxi here. There's other cryptocurrencies out there, and oh yeah, we have to, you know you there's the value block was specifically made to be able to to handle anything uh, mm-hmm. that you could throw at it, and so if there's uh, like you'll need a you'll need that that top level definition. Also, because somebody might, you know, somebody might want to share clips and get reward. If it's the Monero podcast or, you know, the Hive podcast or whatever it is, you know, man, they, they may not want Bitcoin. They may not want Lightning. They may want, no, they want, they may want their own thing. Yeah, Hive power. They may want, they may want lots of Hive power. So, you, you know, you can, so then that's where the, to me, that's where the attributes, having, have these, having the value, value destinations and the value information purely defined as attributes on the soundbite tag don't that's where you run into a problem because you're you're now it's not there's not enough fidelity there to know what is it assumes lightning that's true because i guess if you've got uh, someone who's contributing a soundbite and um but 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 see that comes back to your wallet problem so Mm. if you're let's say you right now i'm not aware of any podcast client apps that support anything other than lightning so i guess if you were to think forward to a point in the future where there is um, like an LN pay equivalent for Hive, so a Hive pay, let's say, um, wallet, you spin up a Hive pay wallet, you spin up a LN pay wallet, and it's part of Podverse, let's say, um, then you'll have two different balances. At which point then, if it supports it, that is to say the Soundbyte contributor supports Hive and they've got a Hive, um, a Hive address for their wallet, then it would simply split that out to that wallet. Um, mm. but how we handle multi-currency splits, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. I don't, you know, it's like, it's either all one, all the other, that's easy. But if it's part hive, part lightning, how does that even work? Because the value of a hive, because yeah, this, this is, um, this is coming. It's like everything needs to be for an individual episode of one currency. Otherwise it's, it's not, it's extremely complicated to do because you'd have to have a, a fixed rate or fixed amount in either Lightning or Hive, depending on which you support. Stepping into the theoretical here for a second. Yeah, sure. The This is something, this may sound, you know, when people hear us discussing the, the intricacies of things like this, this may sound just like, oh, this, this, you know, silly, why would you, you know, this is too complicated, why would anybody want to fool with this, this is, this is goofy. But if you, if you, I, I think it's naive to think at this point that cryptocurrency in some shape, form, or fashion, no matter what it is, Bitcoin or whatever, cryptocurrencies are not going anywhere. I mean, if if anything, we're going to become more crypto with central bank digital coins uh, that are inevitable. Things like I mean, these these concepts, these tools of of cryptocurrency are are they're only going to become more entrenched in what we do. It's not, you, you, we're not going back. 
<laughs> Let's put it that way. It's not going, we're not going back to the way things used to be. This is a thing that exists now and we're just going to have to, we're going to have to integrate with it at some point. So it makes sense to work these things out now. And what, that's one reason why we didn't try to do 50 different cryptos or all these kinds of things. We focus it's like, okay, we know Bitcoin. We understand how it works. We understand lightning. We're going to, we're going to settle on this because Bitcoin has, seems the most like money. It operates the most like a money. Um, and we're just going, we're going to do, we're going to settle and do this one thing. Now, you know, in the future, we can figure out like what you, what me and you were talking about a while ago, these multi-currency splits and all this kind of stuff. That's, that's a big mess, you know, but we'll figure that out when we get there, but you got to have the foundation first, uh, because it is a thing and it's going to, I, I guess I just kind of, that's something I think about often is, you know, when I people, when I hear people talking about cryptocurrencies and, and as if it's sort of like optional, that you don't have to think about this thing, that it's just like, it's a big, it's a fad or whatever. It's, it's no, no, that's not how the, that's not how this works. It is a thing that is going to be with us for a very long time. And going to get, that's going to become even more and more true. I think over time. I absolutely agree. I guess my, um, I mean, yeah. Okay. So, I mean, I know I went way off into the future there and, you know, thinking about multi, multi-currency splits and so on. And uh, of the three that we've, we've spoken about today, like Monero and Hive and, and Lightning. Mm. I mean, if we want to be pragmatic about it, we just have to pick one and stick with it and simply say, well, for the moment, the standard only supports sharing of a single currency type. So, you know, like the podcaster says, well, I will, you know, remunerate sound bites in lightning only because, you know, the rest of the podcast only accepts lightning and it make it that simple. Like if you yeah, want to, as a true. podcaster yeah. in future, support all Hive, then you say that. If you want to support all Monero, you say that. Um, and you can handle the multi-currency split by by essentially saying, I don't ex- handle multi-currency splits because, I mean, you could look at this from uh, any street vendor's point of view and say, well, I'm selling ice creams. What do you what do you accept? And it's like, well, I only accept Solana. And then you're like, what? <laughs> I, uh, anyway. Well, too bad I don't have any of that. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah. oh, no, just no. Yeah. But anyhow, um, sorry, Solana fans out there, if there's any left. Um, yes, but um, all right, cool. Well, look, this is... Um, this has been good because it's a chance for me to sort of like because I I can't have these sorts of conversations with um with just anybody, Dave. So <laughs> I, you shouldn't. You, know, you should not have these conversations with anybody. You would have less friends, John. I you, you know you're probably right. Uh, so yeah, let's not push the other friendships <laughs> out there. Uh, but in any case, um, yeah. So look, I um yeah, I appreciate your time talking through all of this. Yeah, sure. And um and I know that when when we were on episode 100, uh, I I was sort of hoping that we would have a chat about it, but. Um, but Adam was really keen to talk about music and I didn't want to like, you know, cause you know, as Dan is so famously says, uh, it's, it's your show kind of thing. It's not my show. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's your show. So, you know, I was not going to push it. So I thought, you know what, I'll just get Dave on pragmatic and talk about it because you know, why not? Right. Hey, and, sounds, um, sounds good. I'm, I'll, I will talk this stuff any time of any day. Awesome. Fantastic. If you would like to talk more about this, you can reach me on the Fediverse at uh, Chigi at engineered.space uh, on Twitter at John Chigi or one word or the network at engineered underscore net. Uh, if you're enjoying Pragmatic and you'd like to support us and keep the show ad-free, you can by becoming a premium supporter. Uh, premium support is available via Patreon and through the Apple Podcasts channel subscription. Just visit engineered.network slash pragmatic to learn how you can help this show to continue to be made. Thank you. 
A big thank you to all of our supporters. A special thank you to our silver producers, Mitch Bilger, Kevin Kosh, Shane O'Neill, Leslie Law Chan, Kellen Fradelius Fujimoto, Jared, Bob, Joel Maher, Katerina Will, and Dave Jones. And an extra special thank you to our gold producer, Stephen Bridal, and our gold producer, known only as R. Pragmatic is a podcasting 2.0 enhanced show, which is what we've been talking about today. How about that? And with the right podcast player, you'll have episode locations, enhanced chapters and real-time subtitles on selected episodes. And you can also stream Satoshis and Boost with a message if you like. That's a Boostergram. And there's details on how you can do that along with our Boostergram leaderboard on our website. Uh, now, if you'd like to get in touch with Dave, uh, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you, mate? Uh, probably on the Fediverse, uh, Dave at podcastindex.social or uh, email uh, Dave at podcastindex.org. Awesome. Fantastic. Well, uh, once again, a special thank you to all of our supporters and a big thank you to everyone for listening. And uh, once again, thank you, Dave, for coming back on the show. It's uh, always a pleasure. Yeah. Uh, love, love talking to you, John. That was always great. Thank you. Add that to my to-do list. Thankfully, there's only 39 other things on it, but that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Right, yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. All right, cool. Excellent. Because, I mean, the thing is about my my Tesla, I love my Tesla. It's a beautiful car, but it's got problems, and I can absolutely understand why people don't want to drive them. And it's, um, yeah, like just like they did a software update about a month ago, and it gives you these alert warnings when you drift too close to the center line. On, on the road and honestly mm-hmm. i'm nowhere near crossing that line like seriously if i were to get a like a, a ruler out and measure how far i'd have probably at least i don't know five four or five inches before i'm going to cross that line and then it does you know emergency steering correction applied for safety and it goes beep 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 beep, beep. and i'm like whoa what it's like they may oh that would drive me nuts i know and the worst part is you go into the screen and you say disable it and you're like yep it says if you disable this it won't try to correctively steer and i'm like yeah i know leave me alone let me drive it <laughs> you know and so you disable it and you're like two thumbs up everything is good so you reach a destination you go on you know have your coffee or whatever you get back in the car again and it automatically re-enables every time you hit drive and i'm like no. oh. so it's like it's stuff yeah. like that that makes me want to punch the screen but I, I just I have I haven't yet, so the screen is still intact. But there may come a time if they don't fix it. So it's just stuff like that. Like you, I never had this problem driving my Honda Jazz. You know what I mean? You stick the car and you twist the key away you go. And, and yeah, <sighs> I just really don't want my car making. I, I, I don't 
want my car making decisions yeah, for me. I, I get that. I, this when you know I jump in, I jump mm. in the truck. Uh, I jump in the truck. I throw it in neutral. Uh, I start roll. You know, I, I take my foot off the brake, start rolling, crank it up on the you know on the way, then throw it you know throw it into second and go. And it baffles my children. <laughs> They're like, "How did you crank the car with it rolling down the road?" I'm like, "I'm like, guys, this 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 vehicle." doesn't know it's 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 dumb it doesn't understand anything it all it all it knows is all it knows is when you press the gas go when you hit the when you hit the brake stop and that's all it cares about <laughs> and this is exactly what a, what I want out of a car of mine I don't want it to make any decisions for me well I'll tell you one thing that blew my kids mind similar to that is um I had a flat battery you know as you have with a manual so uh, every now and then you know any car sorry but as you have with a manual you, you can just roll start it right so that's right here yeah, I am yeah. I'm I'm I'm, I'm, uh, I'm towards the bottom of a hill but there's still enough of an incline so you get that car you push it down the hill and then the car started and they're like how the hell did you do that dad and I'm like, oh my god, <laughs> this is what it, this is what it's know, magic. some kind of magic, isn't it? It's like no, it's just it just. Oh. I tried to explain it to them, and they just like a blank expression. I thought you needed jumper cables, Dad. I'm like, no, you don't need jumper cables. Have you have you ever driven a? I don't, I don't know. Um, I don't know what the the stick shift history there is mm. in in Australia, but have you ever driven a car with or a truck with a, um, st- a stick shift on the column? Uh, once M- manual on the column. Once uh, many years ago, back in the, like when I was really young, like I was seventeen years old, my grandfather had a old Holden Tirana that had a manual shift on the gear steering column. I drove it for a total of about maybe thirty yards. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's just like it's just like a three speed, but you 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 pull it you pull the lever back and up. That's reverse. Yep. Uh, back and down is first gear. Back uh, forward and up is second gear, and forward and down is third gear. Yeah. And so, like this, I took my I took my truck to get it to get tire the tires uh, replaced a couple of years ago, and the uh, so I, it's sitting out in the parking lot, and the guy, this old dude behind the counter, um, he was like, uh, he said, he said, is that your truck? He said, yeah. And he said, okay. And so he got all the stuff together, and he said, uh, hey. So and so, some teenage kid. He's like, go, go, pull the truck into the into the bay. Oh God! And so he, the kid, the kid, he's like seventeen. He goes out there, and the, that old dude was like, uh, he's like, yeah, let's see, let's see if he can make if he can figure this out. And he got in there, and he just stared at it for like five <laughs> minutes. And and finally, he came back in. He's like, hey, hey, man, I don't know what to do. Oh, damn. Uh, I love that they. I've seen cars with stickers on the back, and you you probably got the stickers over in the states as well. Um, it's got a picture of a um like a stick shift gate. You know, the the six position um you know manual shifter gate, and it's just, that's mm. on the sticker, and it says millennial millennial anti theft device fitted. That's right. <laughs> oh, God, I just love that so much. <laughs> A hundred percent. It's so good, and it's so true, and it, and it's funny because my um my daughter had a traumatic experience. In other words, she kept stalling it on a slight hill. Okay. When I was trying to teach her to drive my car, because I'm trying to say kids, kids get your license in a manual, and then you can drive a manual or an automatic. Yeah. Whereas if you get stuck with an automatic, you can only drive an auto. Because we have you know the rules in Australia are if you get an auto license, you're not legally allowed to drive a manual. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I, and I actually think that's a good call because frankly, I've watched some people that don't know how to drive a manual try to drive a manual and it's comical and dangerous. So anyway, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. but my sure. um, my oldest son, you know, he insisted, he's like, nah, I'm, I'm down for this. I am learning how to drive a manual. Mm-hmm. And so he gets in now, he's got his license. Uh, he's on his provisional license now so he can drive without me sitting with him. Anyway, so he's out and about driving. He gets home, he says, oh, dad, I love driving a manual, just like windows down, blaring my stereo. And I'm like, yeah, it's pretty awesome, hey. <laughs> and he gets into my daughter's car, which is an automatic, and he's like, I hate this car. It's too boring. It's just, there's nothing to do. I don't like it. And I'm like, yes, he understands. I get he's it. He's an old soul. He is an, old, an soul. old soul. He is. So I think it, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that so far at least one of my kids gets it. Uh, and I drove manual cars for the vast majority of my life. Um, you know, I even drove, I drove my Honda Jazz, which is a um, five-speed manual in and out of the city in Brisbane, which is a good mm. hour commute each way, like five days a week for five years, you know, uh, in, in, in yeah. rush hour traffic. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I was a hardcore manual um, driver. So, for me, the te- my Tesla has been the first automatic that I've bought for myself. Um actually come to think of it ever because I, I was given uh, a ford laser hatchback when i was younger my mum gave that to me as a hand-me-down and then she made me give it back when i went overseas it's like you you but ford, ford laser. laser i wonder what that compares to i wonder sure. what the equivalent there'd of be some is. kind of an equivalent in the states but it was a 1988 model um it was a oh, okay it's a piece yeah. of well it was a Ford laser. <laughs> I don't know what else to say, but it, it's like a... Also called the, called the Ford Meteor. Oh, yeah, that sounds yeah. about right. Yeah, it was a hatchback, and but it, it was automatic. But technically, I didn't buy it. It was given to me, so therefore, yeah. every other car I bought since... Uh, every car I bought it, except the Tesla has been manual. But um, anyway, never mind. 